This week on Into the Archives with the Boone podcast, uh, the great announcer, the great broadcaster, the great quarterback, uh, Super Bowl champion, two-time Pro Bowler, Joe Theismann. Sometimes you just need to enjoy a classic. Join us as we go into the archives. Hey, we going back. And put our ear to the history books with this one. This is Into the Archives. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Theismann. Joe, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, listen, Brett, it's great to catch up with you, man. I, I used to, when I was a little kid, I watched you play, and I, I think it was just so great. So great to talk to one of your heroes. <laughs> <laughs> I am breaking my own rules, you know. It's it, In the last two months, in the last two months, I've had two Irish quarterbacks on. I had Rick Meyer on, now you as a Trojan Although, you know, I'm kind of a fake. I went to USC. I'm kind of that fake Trojan, though. I'm, I'm a homer. When, they, when they're winning, I'm, I'm rah-rah, shiskumba. When they're losing, I'm not, I don't really care. My brother. How, how, how upset do you get? Like when they're I losing. Really, I, really, I really, I pretend. All right. I've got a brother that went there. He still to this day, and he embarrasses me. I mean, he'll, he'll, go, he'll come down the road, uh, fight song blasting. <laughs> You know, and I said, Aaron, you cannot be the manager of the New York Yankees and act like a child with your jersey on Saturday. That's what he does. Now, I've got a daughter that graduated from SC a few years ago. She's equally. I mean, she every week you're going to watch the game, Dad. You're going to watch the game. I I am so fair weathered. Like, of course, I pull for them. But if they lose, I, I just don't get that upset. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, what's funny is it's interesting when. When somebody I'm rooting for loses, I don't get involved emotionally in the win or the loss. I sit there and I analyze why. I, it's just, I think it's the quarterback in me. It's the broadcaster in me. And I sit and I analyze and, you know, I yell at quarterbacks, get rid of the ball. Why did you do that? Understand down in distance, know where you are. Where's the wind coming? I, mean, I just, I, I, I'm in my own little broadcasting world uh, still to this day. But you know, I, I get to. I'm the same way with the Irish. I mean, it's it's crushing. Um, you know, the game against Oklahoma State in the bowl game was just. We go out twenty-eight-seven, and all of a sudden we wind up losing that ball game in the end. Uh, it was just, you know, it was a ebb and flow type of a football game where your emotions go up and down and all over the place. And now you've beat us. I think this is the fourth year in a row. When I was at SC, I don't think we lost to, to Notre Dame. And I was there. I was there at 88, 88, 89 and 90. I was the Rodney Pete Marinovich era. I had two ties. I, I, you know, like I was, my record was like, I think 20 and three and two or something like that. I tied USC twice. We tied them. Uh, we, we tied them seventeen seventeen at our place on a bogus call by an official. He called a clip, and the guy never clipped him. Took away a field goal that we had, and then I believe we tied them twenty one twenty one. Matter of fact, my sophomore year, when we played them out there on the coast, it was my sophomore year was twenty one twenty one when OJ was there. Um, the first pass I threw in that game. Now, now. Terry Hanratty, who was a Heisman Trophy candidate, was the quarterback. He got hurt in week seven or eight. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, Era's got two other seniors on the roster, Bob Belden and Cole O'Brien. And I'm a sophomore, and he, I'm, he makes me the starter. So I think we played Georgia Tech, 
and Pittsburgh or vice versa. And then we go to play USC on the coast. And the first pass I throw is picked off and run back for a touchdown by Sandy Durko. And um, I'll never forget it. I walked by Era and I said, don't worry about it. I'll get it back. And he told me many years later at his 90th birthday, I asked him, why did you, why me? Why you had Coley? Coley had quarterback Notre Dame to a national championship in 66. I said, why me? And, and, and this was 68. And you had Bob, a senior. He said, I just felt like you were ready. And, and I, I appreciated that more than you can imagine. But so many years went by and I wondered why. You know, you get that for us in athletics. It's always like, why has the opportunity presented itself? Now it's up to us to capitalize on it. And for me, it was like, you know, here I am. My first pass, I walked by. I said, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll get it back. And uh, we wound up with the 21-21 tie. It was the lowest rushing total I think O.J. had in his entire career. But it was a um, – those to me – were barometers where I measured whether I belong because so many players from USC went on to professional football. When I was in high school, it was New Brunswick, New Jersey. We used to play them on uh, Thanksgiving Day at Rutgers Stadium. I grew up about 20 minutes from there, and we were they were our rivals. And if I could play well against them, I felt like I belonged. Then when I got into college, USC became that barometer by which I measured myself. If, if I could play well against them with all the guys going into pro ball – you know, then then maybe I belong in college football. And then when I got to the pros, it was the Dallas Cowboys because they, they were the it was an unbelievable rivalry, just like USC was for us. And then all of a sudden, you know, that if you could play well against them or you could beat them, there was this validation, I guess you could say it was, you know, I was one of those guys who just sought validation um, in the athletic endeavors that I took on. No, I see what you're saying, though. There's the, the Goliaths, and, and that to you was the Goliath, the USC. Uh, by the way, why, how were we playing the ties? We didn't have overtime then? No, didn't have overtime. Uh-uh. <laughs> they, no. they said 17-17 tie. Good game, guys. Go ahead, go ahead home. Yeah, that's about it. And, you know, I mean, well, heck, we have ties in professional football, for crying out loud. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the Steelers, uh, they're seven, they're eight, seven, and one. I mean, you know, that to me – I just, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of adopting the college rule where everybody starts at the 25 yard line. Um, you know, maybe, maybe there's some type of modification where you can eliminate the tie. You, they reduce the the quarter in overtime to 10 minutes, so you only have 10 minutes now. I say you go back and you let each team run a two minute drill, or I mean. You know, maybe most first downs. I don't know, but I'm not a big fan of ties. What really upset me was in the All-Star game when they had to tie in the All-Star game because I'm a huge baseball fan. Like I said, I was just I was just busting on you, but I really I love the way you played ball. Um, and because uh, I got I got drafted by the Twins out of college to play, and it was like baseball has always been my first love. And so for me, when I saw that All-Star game end in a tie, I said, "You've got to be kidding me." No. There's no ties. They just ran, they ran out of players. There's no there's there's no crying in baseball to quote no, Tom Hanks. There's, there's no ties in baseball. I wouldn't think. Yeah. You grew up South River uh, South River, New Jersey. Um, Want to hear about Joe Theismann as a kid? Tell me about your parents. Well, my mom. Uh, I grew up in a little town, South River, about one square mile big. There were all kinds of little towns in that area, and it. Um, yeah, I played Pop Warner football. My mom wouldn't let me play Pop Warner football. My, my mom worked at Boy Scouts of America for almost 20 years. 
and at Squibbs um, Pharmaceutical for a number of years. My dad um, worked in, uh, at a gas station in which he, he partnered with his brother, John. Uh, it was an at that time, it was a uh, Esso station, not an Exo, Exxon station. And then he went to work for uh, my uncle John at, at a liquor store. My dad spent 25 years in the gas station and 25 years in the liquor store. And fortunately, I, they retired and you know, he retired at like 65. And I was fortunate enough to be in professional football. And so I retired my mom and dad to Florida. And I promised them anywhere they wanted to go in the world once a year, they could just let me know and we'll make it happen. And so it was sort of my way to say thank you to mom and dad for all the sacrifices they made. I mean, my dad worked 13 hours a day, six days a week, Brett. And, and, you know, people say, who's your hero? My dad was my hero because, you know, we'd come home from church and dad would plop down in his chair and he'd be asleep in a heartbeat. And here would come little Joey after we cleaned the dishes for, for Sunday meals. And we, you know, we had one sort of big meal. Everything else was leftovers. I mean, my mother and father's combined income was $12,000 a year. So, you know, we, we managed but you know, we had everything that everybody else had. It's just that it wasn't the glitz and glamour and some of the other stuff that we see today. But my dad used to pop down in that chair and I'd shake his arm and say, come on, dad, let's go outside and throw the ball around. And about five minutes later, I lived two blocks from my high school. My buddy would come by on his bike. He said, hey, Joe, we're going to play ball. Come on. I dropped my bag. Hey, get you later, pop. You know, and never once, Brett, did my father, when I tried to wake him out of a sleep, say to me, son, I know you're going to be gone in 10 minutes. Just let me lay here. He never, he always got out of that chair. He was always there. And while dad was working, mom was my, she was my pitcher. She was my catcher. She was my wide receiver. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was very blessed uh, to have my mom and dad with me for a lot of years. Mom passed at 92. Dad passed at 90. And dad and I, my, you know, at 90, my dad and I still play golf together. And what scares me right now, I look at my golf swing and starting to look like my dad's a little bit. I'm going, oh, my <laughs> gosh, what, what's going to happen to me going forward? But I, I was very lucky. We lived with my grandmother. Uh, and uh, like I said, I grew up two blocks from my high school, man. My mother wanted to find me. You walk out the front door. You make a right-hand turn. Two blocks later, you're on a – you're on a either – uh, I'm playing stickball against the school. I'm playing tennis. I'm playing basketball. I'm playing football. I'm playing baseball. I was, that was my life as a kid. That's how it was. I, I yeah. love, I love those times though. I am in this, this is, well, you could probably appreciate this. My dad comes back from Hawaii. I think he was on one of those trips. You know, what do they used to have the, the, uh, on the wide world of sports where they'd have all yeah, the different, yeah, yeah. he yeah, come I, back from, I competed in them. Yeah. Yeah, I think dad came back from one of those one year and he had a conch shell. So I grew up, you know, in around town, exactly what you're saying. We're out playing stickball. We're playing hockey. You know, we're playing street hockey. Move the move the nets when the cars have to go by. Uh, two hand touch in the street, wiffle ball, whatever we can go. And at the end of the night, when it was time for me to come home, dad would blow this conch shell. And my buddies, my buddies would look at me and start laughing. Goes, Oh, Brett must have to go home now, <laughs> but you're right. Life was simpler. You know, it was like, that means get your ass home. <laughs> it really was. You know, one of my favorite, one of the favorite games we played when we were kids was we would take that, that, that pink ball and you would throw it against a curb and if you caught it right, if it if it went on the if it went, you know, on the other side of the street, and over the curb on the other side of the street, it was a home run. And so, I mean, we found all kinds of ways to to do stuff. I mean, I used to 
I used to make these stick when it rained like heck outside. I'd put my boots on, throw a coat, a raincoat on, put a rain hat on and sit and let my little ship float down the gutter. Uh, and do all, you know, it, it was uh, they were let's put it this way, but they were simpler times. Um, and I, I wish that some of the young people today could experience simpler times instead of having to deal with so many pressures that young people have to go through today. South River High School. Speaking of Cowboys, you, you opened up talking about the Cowboys a little bit. Drew Pearson's a high school teammate, but you're a baseball player, basketball, and a football player. And it, it sounds to me like baseball is kind of your first love. Uh, yeah. Take me through that high school, and uh, eventually you go on to Notre Dame. Yeah, it was it was great. Um, my cousin Billy w- was our neighbor, and he was the second baseman. He was also the other guard on the basketball team. Uh, Drew was my wide receiver in high school. As a matter of fact, first pass, first pass Drew caught was a was a touchdown pass. They played it at his Hall of Fame induction this year. It was so great to see him go into the hall. Um, he was such an incredible Dallas Cowboy receiver, and it was really funny watching film of him as a Dallas Cowboy was the same way he ran and the same things he did when I played with him in high school. But we were, you know, we were undefeated my uh, my senior year in high school, and I'm still close to a lot of my buddies from there. I don't know how you are, but it seems like my high school buddies are the ones that I've always remained the closest to over time. And it's really funny. I went to a 50-year reunion um, not not too long ago, and we were walking around, and I'm, I'm looking at some of the guys. I'm going, wow, man, it, I can't believe. They, the guys looked alike, Brett, but the girls necessarily didn't, which I was a little <laughs> bit surprised about. They, they just they looked not, not size-wise, right, but facially, they just, they just looked a little different but yeah i love i loved baseball uh played in the triple aba went up to johnstown pennsylvania played up there i used to play in the summer i drove a uh, my summer job was a uh, i was a beer truck driver for a guy by the name of pete lasardi was schaefer breweries out of somerville and i'd really keep my baseball uniform in the truck and they would send us out on different runs and i learned about loads and so I was, you know, I, I became a union guy uh, as a driver. And um, and then basketball was we had these funky stripe. We looked like the Globetrotters before the Globetrotters with these funky pants. And they were like right up to your crotch kind of shorts. And uh, but uh, I'll never forget. We had a kid because I live in the south and everybody's very polite down there. And the kids come up and instead of trying to pronounce your last name, they come up and say, Hey, Mr. Joe, or to my wife, Hey, Miss Robin. And I always laugh because our center on our basketball team was a guy by the name of Ziggy Dugalazemski. And I could just picture somebody trying to come up and say, Hi, Mr. Dugalazemski, how are you? And I would, I just chuckled to myself at times, again, going back at the way we grew up. But Life was all sports when I was a kid growing up. I mean, I was a I was an okay student. I did enough to be able to play ball and do the things I wanted. But it really wasn't until I got to Notre Dame when I really understood and tried to apply myself academically to stay eligible. How'd you get to Notre Dame? How'd you make that choice? Uh, interesting. I um, I was recruited by a number of schools coming out of high school. I was a high school All American, I think, and. And I, I chose five schools, Penn State, University of North Carolina, Wake Forest, North Carolina State, and Notre Dame. Those were the ones I were go- was going to visit. Just so happened my head coach in high school, a guy by the name of Ron Wojcicki, backed up Roman Gabriel at North Carolina State University. And I thought, you know what, that's a good reason to go to college there. So I chose North Carolina State. Uh, Earl Edwards was the coach at that time. 
And uh, I visited Wake, I visited UNC, and and then uh, I'd made up my mind to go to, to state. And then Notre Dame called and said, we'd like you to make a trip out. And I said, well, I've already decided I want to go to North Carolina State. And he said, we know that, but because we're an independent, if you choose to come here, you wouldn't lose a year of eligibility. At that time, it wasn't like it is today with the portal. I mean, you just guys, it's a free-for-all out there in college football now, uh, or college athletics, I guess you could say. And so um, I made the trip out to Notre Dame. And Rocky Blyer and Dan Harshman were my chaperones, two running backs. Of course, Rocky, the you know Vietnam vet and you know fantastic Pittsburgh Steeler. And so we fly back. I fly back. Dad picks me up in Newark, New Jersey, and he says, "What do you think?" I said, "I have to go to Notre Dame." And he says, "Why?" I said, "Dad, it just feels right." And, and and Brett, I contend this that sometimes we allow ourselves to talk ourselves out of what our gut believes. And if we would stay with our gut decisions more often, I think the percentages of things turning out better would probably be higher. And so I trusted my gut and I wound up at the University of Notre Dame. And uh, like I, you know, I would say I, I, I punted. We, we played one game against Pittsburgh my freshman year because freshmen weren't eligible. So we had one. We had a freshman team and the varsity just beat the crap out of us. That's all it was. We were just there to be beat up. And then my sophomore year, I started the first seven games as a punt returner. I went from punt returner to starting quarterback in the span of an hour <laughs> at the wow. University of Notre Dame. And then uh, you know, I guess you could say the rest is history after that. It was a, but you know, it was really funny because you know, that was where Roger Valdeseri, who was our public relations director, my senior year, changed the pronunciation of my last name from Thiesman to Theisman. Um, I'd had a really good junior year, and Roger calls me in the office. He says, how do you pronounce your last name? I said, it's Thiesman. He said, no, Joe, it's actually pronounced Theisman. I said, no, Roger, my last name is pronounced Thiesman. He said, no, it's pronounced Theisman. I said, give me the phone. So I picked up the phone. I called my dad back home in Jersey. I said, Dad, I got a question for you. My father would always say when I had a question, fire away, son. So I get my dad on the phone. I said, Pop, got this question for you. He says, fire away, Joe. I said, Dad, how do you pronounce our last name? And like, there's dead silence on the phone for about a minute. And my father comes on. He says, son, are you all right? He said, you're a senior at college. You don't know who you are. What the heck's going on? I said, I'll explain later. I'll just, this is, you know, just tell me, how do you pronounce our last name? He said it was Thiesman. Turned to Roger and I said, Roger, my last name's Thiesman. I know I just got to phone my dad. He said, Joe, I want to tell you something. There's a trophy out there called the Heisman Trophy. He goes the best college football player in the country. We think you have a chance to win that trophy, but we're not just going to count on the reputation of Notre Dame, nor your athletic ability. We think by simply changing the pronunciation of your last name from Thiesman to Theisman to rhyme with Heisman, we can get you that trophy. That's how I became Joe Theisman. And uh, it was the first time that any university had ever really put any type of a campaign together to try and get somebody the Heisman trophy. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. What did your family say? Did they care? I, I don't think they'd care. I, 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 I'm thinking about it right now. If it's me, 
I, I think it's kind of a cool thing. Well, you know, I mean, again, we're, now it is, but think back 50 years ago. I mean, you, I mean, you really go back more than that, 55 right. years ago. But it was really funny. I called my grandmother. So she was the matriarch of our family and we're German. Theisman is German. So I called my grandmother and I, Oh, you got to get the okay from her. I called granny. I said, granny, look, they want to change the pronunciation of our last name. She says, well, I tell you this. She says the correct pronunciation is Theisman. And actually what they want to do is closer to it than what we have now. So she was fine with it. So that's, uh, that's what happened. That's we, I wound up becoming Joe, becoming Joe Theisman. But when I get back to Jersey, like when we used to play the Giants and all that stuff, everybody would give me all kinds of crap. Hey, he's been, uh, you've changed your name. You're not proud of your heritage. All that baloney. You know, it, it's funny. But we're, uh, <laughs> the kids are Theismans and my buddies are still, I'm Joey Theismans. You know, it's funny too, growing up in Jersey, Brett, we all have Y's at the end of our name. There's Bobby, Joey, Tommy, Jimmy. Everybody's, everybody's got a last name that ends in, or first name that ends in Y. But the most important thing is Graham. She okayed it. Yeah, Graham. You, know, you bring up a great point and uh, about about your gut reaction, your gut feeling when you went to Notre Dame. Now, obviously, I was never a football player, but I got to go to Notre Dame one time and uh, it was the SC Notre Dame game. And they had, you know, they wanted to get a little something going on with the baseball yep. uh, teams. So they they offered us, hey, we'll we'll. We'll take you to Notre Dame for the SC Notre Dame football game. You'll play a little practice game. You, you know, we'll get a little publicity about it. All the baseball players, great. You know, we get to go back to Notre Dame. At SC, we kind of take it for granted. You know, we go to the Coliseum. Most of the guys are headed to Fraternity Row by halftime. It's just a different – it's a different place. And when I went to that – you know, when I walked into that stadium and you're sitting on those bench seats – you're yep. just you're packed in wall to wall, you know, you're elbow to elbow with people. It was it was the coolest football game I ever went to. It's a great and it, it, it's it's just different. And and to this day, I explain it. I've been you know, I've been to a lot of sporting events. And, and you know, when people ask me, what's one of your favorite? I said, Notre Dame. I went to Notre Dame SC at Notre Dame. It was the coolest Maybe coolest sporting event I've ever been to. There's just something special about it, especially on the football side about uh, about that Notre Dame. It really is. And you know what, Brett, the new stadium that obviously they built a sort of a superstructure around the original. They kept the original stadium, the 55,000 seats. They're they're trying to get rid of some of the splintered ones now. Um, and they built this, they added 30,000 around it. We have a big jumbotron now, and it's uh, a lot of classrooms are in the facility. A lot of there's training for training um, for students there. And, you know, we're, people ask me where I went to school. And I said, I went to a small school in the Midwest called the University of Notre Dame. Everybody laughs. But I was there. There was there were 7,200 guys. It was all male. Uh, uh, women came in. In 1972, the year I graduated, the year after I graduated, women uh, were into the University of Notre Dame. And our women's sports have been spectacular. I mean, whether it's soccer, field hockey, basketball, you know, they're just winning national championships. Our baseball team went to the finals last year. I mean, it, the program is is really more than just football at the University of Notre Dame. But um, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. Before they built the superstructure, and you were there, I think, before that happened, if you stood at the five-yard line sort of facing campus, right above the score, right above the stadium, you could see the upper part of the library, which is Christ on the cross. 
And that's where the term touchdown Jesus came in. And I could imagine if you were an opposing quarterback and you're backed up on the five-yard line and you're looking out at the Notre Dame defense and you happen to look up, you got to be thinking, are you kidding me? I mean, there is such a thing as divine intervention. I believe that. Yeah. And so, you know, I just I just got the biggest kick at it. I'm thinking, man, if you were an opposing quarterback and you saw that, you got to be thinking, what in heaven's name are we up against? That's cool, though. That's a cathedral. Tell yes. me about Zom, tell me about Zom Hall. Is it Zom? No, actually, I was in Walsh. Uh, oh, you were in Walsh. See, Soren, yeah, Zom, Soren. Um, Soren was where the captain, one Soren's where the captain of the football team was. But there were, we had two different quadrangles. There was the north and the, and the south. And I lived on the, I lived on the, the, uh, the, actually it was north. It was right next to the bookstore. And, you know, we had some great, we had Bengal bouts. We had great boxing there. We had uh, the bookstore tournaments for basketball for the different halls. But I mean, it was just, you know, I spent most of my life uh, on campus shooting pool at a place called the huddle. Um, I had all my classes set up to finish at one o'clock, uh, whether it was in season or out of season, because I had to have it during season to go to practice. So all my classes, we're only in the morning until one o'clock. And then, uh, and then I just, after that, when football was over, I just went over to the huddle and started shooting pool. And I, I became, I think third best on campus at one time. And uh, I just really used to love to go in there and, you know, play a little nine ball and have some fun and, and enjoy, enjoy the college experience. I mean, I, heck I went out literally, and I'm not kidding. Years in college. Um, I wasn't that the goodest student, so I had to study. Same girl, her name was Margie Broderick. Um, went out with her my my freshman year. Went out with her my sophomore year, and uh, and then I, you know, of course St. Mary's was across the street, so um, I made up for my latter two years in college. But my first two, I really focused on athletics, football, and if I wasn't over shooting pool, I was down in the um, the. Rockney, uh, Rock, Newt Rockney, Paul, uh, playing. So for me, it was you know it was all about sports. It was all about the academics to really be able to stay eligible to play football because that was my goal. Is I, you know, I got there and I wanted to play. I did something, Brett. That's interesting though, and 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 I I, I call this having the opportunity to create a competitive edge. When I signed at the University of Notre Dame, I was one of 13 quarterbacks, I found out. And I, I'm five feet, 10 and 160 pounds. So I'm just, a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a drop of water. There's other guys, 6'2", 6'3", 215, throw the ball through a brick wall. I went to the university a week early. And I spent time with Tom Pagna, our coach, our quarterback coach and coordinator. And, and I learned where to stand in the huddle. And I learned the plays. And I learned some of the things that I needed to from a football perspective. And when everybody else came in, because I had somewhat of a degree of knowledge of what was going on, I was the first guy in the huddle. Now, was I good enough to be able to keep the job? That was going to be remain to be seen. But I had that opportunity. And really, you create that opportunity. I created the opportunity for myself to, to have a chance to be the starter. And I, I think that that's one of the things that, you know, sort of carried me through my life is how do you gain a competitive edge? I was a skinny little kid. Matter of fact, when I walked off the plane, 
guy by the name of Joe Yanto, our defensive line coach, recruited me. He recruited New Jersey. The linebacker coach, Johnny Ray, was uh, a tough, gruff guy. And so Johnny and Wally are, or jo- Johnny and, um, and uh, Coach Yanto are standing at the airport waiting for me. I come walking off the plane. And Co- Coach Ray turns to Coach Yanto. He says, where's this hotshot quarterback? And he points at me. And he says, are you kidding me? He said, I don't think that kid's strong enough to carry a bucket, more or less throw a football. So that was my my first re- impression on somebody at the University of Notre Dame. But I absolutely love the university, love everything about it. And I played seven games. Uh, I played third base for seven games on the baseball team, of which you cannot find one photograph of. Not one photograph. I've had people check the archives there. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in the lineup card. My stats are there. What year was it? It was 1970. Okay, so it was right before it was the end. You were a junior or senior? I was a senior before okay. we went to spring practice. Okay. Well, hence that you get drafted that year. I got drafted by, the, got by drafted. the Twins. I got drafted by the Twins. I believe I was drafted 77th because I tell Piazza all the time he was drafted 99th, which means I was drafted 20 places ahead of him in the draft which was in the Hall of Fame, but what the heck. Um, no, but I, like I said, man, I loved it. I, I played third base because it was really funny. See, back then, there was only one baseball scholarship. And the shortstop was on a half scholarship. The catcher was on a half scholarship. So as it turns out, you know, I, I was on a football scholarship, so I couldn't play shortstop because the, the kid was on a, you know, on a Phil, Phil Krill was his name. Jeez, how did I remember that? Um so anyway, Phil um, Phil's there, and then I played third base, and I think I hit three seventy something, and you know I had, a, I had a good series. We played a round robin down in Miami, a Michigan State, I think Michigan State, Colgate, Miami, and Notre Dame played one of those round robins, and it was it was great, you know. And, and the, you know the one I, I have very few regrets in my life. Uh, I'm a I'm, I call myself a windshield guy, not a rearview mirror guy, but I really would have loved to have gone to a spring training. In camp and just seeing if I could could hit or if I could field and again you know validation to me was, was really what I was looking for. We had a, I played uh, my freshman year. Rodney Pete was the was the quarterback at SC and he was the All American and you know he was going to be a decent draft pick in the NFL. And the baseball, he was a good baseball player. I mean, he'd finish, you know, he, he, it's like he'd come right to our first game, wouldn't practice, wouldn't do anything. And this guy could play. Yeah. And he, I think he got drafted three or four times and he never signed. I said, Rodney, he, I said, what is it? He goes, Brett, I love baseball. He said, but football is my passion. And he never, he never, uh, pursued it on any time. And I, and I had him on recently and he said, yeah, that's the one thing he wished he would have done. Was was give it a give it give it a try to see what it would have been like for him on the baseball yeah. side, the I mean, side you know, of the ledger. And you look at you look at a lot of guys that play the quarterback position. And, you know they're all they're all drafts. You know Elway, Marino. You know, you know I got drafted. Rodney got drafted. Uh, Kyler Murray. And you know it's really funny. I, I made the statement about Kyler. I, I just felt I still think he's he's challenged height wise in this game. But he has proven to be incredibly residual, incredibly dynamic when it comes to playing football. And, you know, I thought, you know, baseball would have been the way he would have gone. But, you know, the kid's fun to watch. 
Uh, I just hope he can last in this game. And it's, you know, if you're a runaround quarterback in this game, you give these defensive coaches enough time to study you. They're going to figure out a way to abuse you and figure out how to corral you. And we're starting to see that a little bit with Lamar Jackson. You know, they're not letting him run around as much and, and do the running things that he did before. And they're making him throw the football. And that, that to me is if you have the ability to throw the football from a pocket, you can play professional football for at least 10, 12 years. I mean, you look, look around the league. There's 32 teams. That means roughly you, you need roughly 90 quarterbacks on rosters, 90 to be able to fill them out. Forget about play, but how many of them can really play? I mean, we're seeing it this year probably more than ever with COVID and injuries and everything else that, you know, the the quarterback pool in the National Football League is not very deep. Sophomore year, uh, you get a shot. Terry Hanratty, you're replacing. All right. 1970, you win the Cotton Bowl. Uh Take me through those years once you took over the helmet at Notre Dame. How is that? How does that change you? All of a sudden, you're you're Joe Thiesman, and now you're Joe Thiesman, and you're the quarterback of the Irish. I was Joe Thiesman up until my senior year. So the end of my sophomore year, all my junior, I was Joey Thiesman. Uh, and then my senior year, I became Joe Thiesman. Um, it, it was – you know, I've said this before, um, and I've asked other people this. I asked Tom Brady once what made him great. He said, the right time, the right place, the right people. I asked Troy Aikman what made him great. He said, the people around me. And, and my answer would be the same. I think uh, I was part of a, a football team that in 68, 66 won a national championship. Now, here I am, the quarterback, uh, a, year, a year after in, in 68. Uh, and the nucleus was incredible of the athletes we had. Do you know that our 1970 University of Notre Dame football team, I believe, still holds the record for the most plays run per game in an entire season at 93? And we huddled. We huddled. Wow. No I'm, hurry up offense. Uh, we 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 just huddled. We, we ran. I mean, it was play go, play go. I mean, part of the problem was is you know, I mean, I think our senior year we shut four people out. We gave up seven points to four other teams, um, and then a few others. You know, USC scored thirty eight points against us my senior year in the Coliseum which was, I think, three times more than anybody had scored against us. We only gave up 119 points uh, my senior year there. And that was just like – and it was in a torrential rain. As a matter of fact, um, Jack Cohen, the young kid from the University of no uh, Notre Dame who quarterbacked them this year against Oklahoma State, at halftime he had 342 yards. And I'm thinking my record at five, I think 21 – 26 somewhere around I said it's you know it's going to be broken and oddly enough he wound up we wound up with 509 points because a buddy of mine sent me a, a text that said your record is still intact <laughs> uh, but uh, and it was in a torrential downpour at the Coliseum Coliseum was my favorite place to play Brett uh, all the RFK was where we played our home games absolutely but when it came to going someplace else to play put me in the Coliseum I love the way the seats sort of fanned away from the field. 
You were removed a little bit from the field. Everybody wasn't on top of you. I love the 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 time of day we played that late afternoon, that little misty air, uh, the sun setting. It was it was fun. It really was. Your senior year, you're an All American, and you're getting ready for the NFL draft. Give me a little lead up to that little snapshot of of how you got ready for that draft and what your agent telling you what are you thinking because it ends up it it ends up being a pretty unique situation you get drafted by the dolphins you get drafted by the twins and you sign with the argonauts right i got drafted by all three of them um baseball was you know they offered me a contract i still have my contract it was five hundred dollars i still have it um you know i just sort of kept it for archival purposes but i but um I really didn't have an agent at that time. It, it was so different. I, there were there were no combines. I sat in Roger Valdeseri's office, our PR director's office, and the draft went on. And different teams would contact you. The Eagles contacted me. The Giants, the you know um, San Francisco, the the Cowboys, all these different teams. And somebody told me he said, whatever team contacts you is not the one that's going to draft you. It's going to be somebody from somewhere else. So the first round went by, and I. You know, because people had said, hey, look, you know, if you're around in the first round, I, mean, I was runner up to the Heisman Trophy. And so then the second round went by and I'm thinking, finally, the third round goes by. I told Roger, I said, I'm not sitting around here and listen, you know, waiting on this stuff. I'm going to play basketball. Come and get me if I get drafted. So I went and I, I played basketball. Roger came in. He said, you've been drafted by the Miami Dolphins. Well, I'd been drafted by the Toronto Argonauts also of the Canadian Football League. So I fly down to Miami and Joe Thomas, who's their general manager, is having heart surgery. So I negotiate my contract with uh, Joe Robbie, who is the owner of the team. I walk into his office. I introduce myself. He introduces himself. He says, what do you want? Now, you're going to love these numbers. I said, I want $35,000, and $55,000, a three-year contract. And I want a $35,000 bonus. I didn't have an agent. I'm smart enough. I'm a Notre Dame guy. I can do this, I thought. He says, you got it. And I'm thinking, no, nah, man, that ain't the way negotiations work. We got to go back and forth a little bit. I read the books on this stuff. And so I fly back to Washington and I go on Miami TV and I go, come hell or high water, I'll be a Miami Dolphin. I fly back and Arapar Sigian is my advisor, whom I never got advice from. Uh, but then they, they put a clause in there when it came to the bonus. I broke it down over three years that if I didn't show up for one particular year i'd have to pay it back and we haggled over it you got to remember 1971 was the end of the vietnam war so i didn't know it was going to go on and so for me um i i got sort of upset i guess you could say a little bit and i wound up uh, i said look this is wrong so i called the argonauts and i said they offered me 50 50 50 50 four-year deal two hundred thousand dollars u.s so i flew to canada and at this time, I'm calling Leo Cahill, who's the coach of the Argonauts. So you're still interested. And, you know, Don Shula thinks he thinks I'm a Miami Dolphin. Done deal. I wind up uh, going to Toronto. They say, you leave the country. The deal's off the table. I sign the deal. I leave. I get back to South Bend. Eric calls me at six o'clock in the morning. He said, what in heaven's name have you done? I signed with the Argonauts. He said, I know Shula's on a plane right now up here to talk to you. And boy, Don read me the riot act. Holy mackerel. He was so pissed. You had a you have a moral obligation to be a Miami Dolphin. I said, well, you had a moral obligation not to screw around my contract. I didn't understand the negotiations. I, you know, I was I was naive and foolish. I don't regret what I did. 
I felt bad that, you know, uh, it turned out the way it did. And Shula hated me after that. And, it, and the irony of it, it's really unbelievable, the irony of it. Um, so I don't sign with the Miami Dolphins. And they go to three Super Bowls. It's the undefeated season. Actually, Earl Morrow, after I didn't sign, Don went and got Earl Morrow from the Baltimore Colts to be the quarterback. And do you know that the undefeated season in 1972 of the Miami Dolphins, Earl Morrow quarterback, I believe, nine of those games. Not Bob Greasy. Bob, Bob did the Super Bowl. But that was that, you know, the uh, Gary Upremian play in the Super Bowl where I think they right. beat Washington 13-7 or 14-7. Um, so I wind up I wind up being a, you know, Toronto Argonaut for three years. Loved my time up in Canada. We went to the Grey Cup, which was the equivalent of the Super Bowl. was an unbelievable football team with a great bunch of athletes. So I come back to the NFL. And in 1982, who do we wind up playing in a Super Bowl? Don Shula and the Miami Dolphins. And I beat him. So now I know he's still pissed at me. So in so uh, 84, we go back and play the Raiders. 85, Rune Arlich comes to me and he says, I want you to be a part of the Super Bowl telecast. ABC had the telecast. And I said, that's exciting, man, because I'm now towards the end. Of, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, 10, 11, 12 years into the game, and I'm thinking sort of about the future. And, and he says um, – uh, I said, I'm, I, am I going to do sideline stuff? He says, no, you're replacing O.J. Simpson in the booth. And so I actually broadcast the San Francisco 49er Miami Dolphins Super Bowl, Super Bowl 19 in Palo Alto, California. Guess who the coach of the Miami Dolphins is? Don Shula. Don so, Shula. Now, so now this, this story of me and Don goes on. And then finally, many years later, it was like, let bygones be bygones and he sort of forgave me for not going there. But he, I mean, that man held a grudge for a long, long time. Uh, How was that? How was that? That's interesting to me because you're in the booth as a current player. I, I went in the booth in 03. They got me to do it for Fox. They were trying out the the third man in the booth. And that's when they first brought a player in. So I go into the booth with McCarver and Buck. I didn't like it because I was I, I felt real con- self-conscious, like I can't be critical. You know, I'm, I'm still prob- in my mind at the time. I'm thinking I got five years left in the game. Uh, I got to face these guys in spring training three months from now. How was that for you going straight from the field as an active player? You're calling the calling the Super Bowl. I think you called it with Gifford and Meredith. I did. And they were great. I mean, it was really I was, I had really no idea. I mean, I talked about plays. I didn't talk about players. I talked about plays. I talked about concepts. Um, right. You know, it was, I mean, that was San Francisco and Miami. I mean, it was, it was an unbelievable football game. And so I really, you know, we, and we would play the 49ers. As a matter of fact, Jack Kemp and I are the only two players that have, that have actually broadcast while we were playing a championship game. I think he did an AFC championship game when, or the, Back, you know, when he was with the Bills, Jack was the other one that did it. But he and I are the only two. Um, it, it wasn't awkward at all. It was an unbelievable experience. And it sort of set me on the path of where I was going to go after that, after uh, after football. And um, I loved it. So you spent time in Toronto, 71 to 73. A lot of success there. You're an all-star in 71, all-star in 73. Then the Dolphins, uh 
make a trade with with the Washington Redskins, a trade for number one pick, and they get Joe Theismann. You're headed to the NFL, back to the States. First of all, how was your time in Toronto? What were the challenges? It, it seems to be Canadian football that the, the rules are a little different. The field's bigger. Tell me yeah. about that and then moving on to the Redskins. Uh, you know, it was it was um, it was it was an eye opening experience for me going to Toronto because the ball was a little bit bigger. It, 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 was a, it seemed a little longer, a little bigger. You had to get used to throwing the ball. The field's wider. The end yeah. zones are 25 yards deep. You only have three downs. Um and uh, as a matter of fact, they have a single up there. If you miss a, if you punt the ball in the end zone and it's it's not run out, it's a, it's one point for the team that punted it in. If you miss a field goal attempt, it's the same thing. It's one point. Um, and, and so for me, I'll never forget my first snap up there. They have unlimited motion. Everybody can be moving. All the backs can be moving. The receivers can all be moving towards the line of scrimmage. So I get up under the center and everybody's moving around and I back away from the center and the ref throws a flag. And he said, yeah, I said, yeah, you know, the guys are moving. He said, Joe, they're allowed to move. You're not. So I wound up with a five-yard penalty, my first play in the Canadian Football League. But uh, John Bassett Sr., who owned our team at that time, was uh, he went on an economic um, freeze, I guess you could say. They weren't going to pay a lot of money. I mean, I was making $50,000 a year back in 1974, which was 73, which was a, a fair amount of money. Uh, by comparison to to professional sports. But he wasn't going to go any higher. He wasn't going to move it up. And we had a gentleman by the name of John Barrow, who was a great defensive tackle at Hamilton, the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And Hamilton, Toronto are separated by about, you know, 60, 50, 60 miles. And so it'd be like having Bob Lilly be the general manager of the Washington Redskins, a great defensive tackle, the Cowboys. So I sit down with John one day and we're negotiating and, you know, I'd, had, I'd come off of a Western swing where I had, you know, some really good games. And he said, you think you're pretty good, don't you? I said, yeah, I, you know, I, I threw three touchdown passes last week. He said, let me talk to you about that. He said, one of those touchdown passes was a five-yard hitch to Eric Flea Allen. And he ran for a touchdown, 70 yards. You think that's important? And, and then he says to me, he said, you know something, Joe? You're just not as good as you think you are. And I said, John, you never were as good as you thought you were. And I knew right then and there that my career as a Toronto Argonaut was probably over. Um, and I'd never, ever come back at anybody and said anything, but it was just he just pushed the wrong button. And so I wound up coming back to the United States. George Allen traded the number one pick to Miami for me. And then oddly enough, 70, you know, the years I was in Canada, 71, 72 and 73, the Dolphins won Super Bowls. They were undefeated in 1972. As a matter of fact, in 1971, when I did not go to the Miami Dolphins, Coach Shula went and got Earl Morrill. And what a lot of people don't realize is Earl Morrill quarterbacked nine of the games in the undefeated season for the Miami Dolphins. He started was the starting quarterback for nine of those games. Bob Greasy had uh, had hurt himself. And so I come back and I join the, the Washington Redskins. And George Allen makes the deal for me and he calls me in his office and he sits down and, he, and George was left-handed and he would always lick his thumb. He'd lick his right thumb and he'd write with his left hand. And so he's got this blank envelope in front of me. And he said, you know, I could have had this guy. I could have had this guy, but I wanted you. I wanted you. And he said, I got somebody on the phone I want you to talk to. And it was Mr. Cook 
who was living in Las Vegas at the time, but he wanted to welcome me to the football team. Never been around a more intimidating individual in my life. Jack would intimidate the living daylights out of everybody. Um, I'll never forget Coach Gibbs when Mr. Cook used to come to practice. There were three cheers set, chairs set up. Uh, John Cook Jr., Mr. Cook, and Joe would all sit in that chair, or Bobby Beathard, our GM, would be one of them. And uh, we knew it was, it was a Wednesday afternoon. And when those chairs were out, Joe was a different coach. He, he wanted to make sure we put on a good show and everything was crisp and, you know, things were jacked up just a little bit more. But um, – and, I, you know, when I came back to the to the Redskins, um, I started my career as a punt returner. Um, I wanted to play. I loved to play. I'd, I'd return punts in college for the first seven games of my sophomore year. I used to catch punts and kick them out of the end zone in the Canadian League to save the one point. So I, I just caught punts for like six, seven weeks. And then all of a sudden the opportunity presented itself and I had a chance to to get on the field against the New York Giants. Um actually snuck on the field against the Giants. Um, our, we had a guy by the name of Herb Mulkey, who George Allen had found in one of his tryout camps, one of the 600-player tryout camps. He got hurt. Kenny Houston, uh, the Hall of Fame defensive back, was also a kick returner. He gets hurt. So I sneak up behind George, and I say, hey, George. I said, I said, Coach, Kenny's hurt. You want me to go in? So he says, yeah. So I go running by him, and, and he turns to Paul Lanham, our special teams coach. He says, what's he doing in there? He said, uh, you sent him in to return punch. He says, heck, I did get him off the field. Well, you know, once you cross the white line, you're in. And so I caught the ball and I could prove to George I could do the job. And so I spent 74 and 75 returning punts and absolutely loved every minute of it. Matter of fact, if the good Lord had blessed me enough to be healthy, to be able to go, go do something in football right now, I would prefer to return a punt. And so it was a lot of fun. And, uh, and then I had a chance to start to play and, I returned punts in 74 and 75, 76, 77. I, uh, you know, learned and sat behind Billy and Sonny had retired in 75. And, and then in 78, George Allen was fired. Jack Pardee took over and I became the, became the starting quarterback. The, the punt return story is tremendous. Uh, let's see. Aaron Rodgers backing up Brett Favre. Would he have ever returned a punt? No, I, you know, <laughs> you know I, I different time, or different Patrick, time. Patrick Mahomes backing up Alex Smith was another yeah. one. You know what was funny though? Doug Flutie, Doug and I are really good friends. Doug Flutie actually was did return or tried to return a punt in it when he was in New England. Uh, I think he fielded one punt, and that was the end of it. Then he realized how crazy that was. So I was. I was one of those few guys that had a chance to be able to start his career that way. I, I was a holder. I was a punt returner. I, I was a punter. I played quarterback. I played running back um, in 1974 against the St. Louis Cardinals. It was a run-pass option. I think the only person that didn't know it was a run-pass option was a little old lady in Topeka, Kansas, who <laughs> might have been watching the game. <laughs> So I wound up getting the crap kicked out of me. But, I, you know, I had a chance to do it all in, in the game, and I, I loved every minute of it. Took over for Billy Kilmer in, in 1978, and uh, this is kind of what you've been waiting for your whole life. You, you had a prestigious career at, at the University of Notre Dame. You went over and had a lot of success in, in Canada, and now you're at the helm. Now you're the man uh, – 
starting quarterback for the Washington Redskins. Take me through. Give me a little snapshot of 78 to 81. 2,500 yards you throw for your first year. 2,700. Follow that up with 2,900. And in 1981, you throw for 3,500. Uh, and jo- that's when Joe Gibbs took over was 1981. Right. So, so give me a snapshot of that and, and speak a little bit to John Riggins and uh, Joe Gibbs. Uh, well, 78 to, to, you know, 78, 79 and 80, um, 78, I, you know, I'm, I'm the toast of the town. First eight games, we're six and two. And I'm on the cover of Sporting Magazine and all these different things. And um, and then we go two and six and, you, you know, you get humbled in a hurry. We finish the season eight and eight. Uh, 79, we have a chance to go to the playoffs and we wind up losing the last game of the season to the Cowboys. It was, I believe, Roger Staubach's last game. Roger hits uh, Tony Hill with a touchdown and winds up winning the football game. And then in at 80, John Riggins retires. You know, John had an unbelievable game in 79 against the Cowboys, and then it, he was done. And so uh, in 1980, he retires. We go 6-10, and 10 and pa- George, Jack Party gets fired. Joe Gibbs comes in in 1981 and takes over, and we're 0-5, and, and uh, he's going to bench me. I don't know this, but after the San Francisco loss, our fifth game, I go to his house and we sit down and, you know, I, I, I said to him, coach, I just don't feel like we're on the same page. And he said, Joe, look, I, I need a quarterback who is committed to football. He said, you have radio shows, restaurants, TV shows, all kinds of stuff. He said, I want a guy that's just totally committed to football. I said, I'll do it. I'll get rid of everything, but give me a chance before I have to do that. And then from that time forward, we, you know, we went eight and three, 12 and one, 16 and three, 11 and I believe five or four. And, and then I got hurt at, at 85. But, um, you know, what, what really became the foundation of our football team when Coach Gibbs took over and, and we made the adjustment after the fifth game was our offensive line, the Hogs. And John Riggins' ability to be able to run the run the football. I remember John ran with such power down around the goal line when Joe Bugle, our, our offensive line coach, put in that particular aspect of our of our goal line package. He basically said, "We're going to block ten guys. John, you're responsible for running over one of them," and that's what he did. I'll never forget, we're playing the Detroit Lions in Detroit. And they've got a defensive back by the name of Luther Bradley. I believe Luther was a Notre Dame guy. And we're down around the goal line. I hand the ball off to John, and there's this pile, and there's this collision. And I see this helmet pop up in the air above the pile, and it's Luther's helmet. John had hit Luther so hard. He was the running back. He hit him so hard, his helmet flew off. And, and, and I'm sitting there, I'm going, my God, he's killed him. He knocked the guy's head off. I couldn't believe it. And then, then we're playing the Rams in 83 out on the coast. They have a defensive back by the name of Jimmy Johnson. Now, Jimmy comes up to hit John and try and tackle him. And I remember him just getting like, bam, knocked out. So... We're at the sort of getting to the end of the half. Now, this is midway through the first quarter. And so I run out of bounds over by the Ram bench. And I see Jim Johnson sitting on the bench just staring out into space. He knocked him basically out. <laughs> I mean, but John was phenomenal. I mean, he 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 partied hard. He played hard. Um, 
man, he was, he was just something else. Uh, you know, he'd go out and have a great time. And the next day he'd be out running gassers, which is the 53 yards, the width of the field back and forth. Um, six foot, six foot two, 230 pounds was a, I think he was a, uh, hurdles champ in Kansas. He and his brother were unbelievable out there, uh, at, uh, in, in Centralia. And, um, he brought that power to Washington and that that he became really the the piston of our offense. My job was to move the chains and pick up first downs and get the opportunity when we could to put points on the board. But, you know, it all went through John. What we were, what we were able to do all went through John. As we mentioned earlier in, in the show, we talked about simpler times. And that was one of the things, you know, I, I always bring it back to baseball, but I remember my childhood and, and watching those Pittsburgh pirate teams, the We Are Family teams and the Big Red Machine and uh, the teams, the Phillies that my dad played on. It's like all those guys came up through the minor leagues and played their whole career together. Yeah. And they lived in the off season. They lived, you know, a half hour from the ballpark and no one had a house over here and over here. I mean, obviously the, 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 uh, the finances have changed well, quite a bit. You couldn't afford a house. You couldn't afford right. a house over here, over there. You know, you were lucky to have one home. But it was. It, I thought it was just a, a cool time, and and obviously it was my childhood. So, you know, those are some of my most memorable times, and and uh, I I love those days. Uh, you mentioned another point that I thought was really interesting in the, in that conversation with Joe Gibbs that turned around your relationship. Uh, I had a similar one. I had Lou Pinella when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, I was this hot shot prospect coming up. Lou Pinella's coming over from the world champion Reds take over the Mariners. And he kind of had that look in his eye to me, like, who do you think you are? You little hot shot. Well, you're going to prove it to me. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to make it really hard on you in the meantime. And I would fight and claw and I'd keep my mouth shut. But I guess it was the way I walked, the way I talked. Uh, there was something about me that, that rubbed Lou wrong. And he, we would have these drag out fights. And I'd go into his office, you son of a bitch. And he'd be screaming. I mean, we'd almost be going to blows. Anyway, we finally had a, a one day where we just let it all out. And I said, what do you want from me? And it was similar to what you were talking about. I said, what do you yeah. want from me, Lou? He said, I want you to do this, this, and this. I said, fair. I said, you just leave me the hell alone. I'm going to play my ass off for the, I, I forget it was 1993, the second half of this season. And he said, fair enough. And he goes, if I don't like it, he goes, I'm going to get ready. <laughs> and if I, uh, if I like what you do, you're going to be my second baseman for the next 15 years. I said, wow. fair enough. And I went out and I had a really good second half. Next thing I know, he's calling me into his office uh, on the weekends and he's betting football games with me. Hey, Booty, let's go. Me and you. So now he's my best friend, right? We finished the season in 93. I'm on my honeymoon and I get a phone call and it's the uh, it's the Seattle Mariners. They said, Brett, you've been traded to the Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> so all the all the press thinks, oh, it's because Lou and Brett really are at odds and they hate each other. It was quite the contrary. I mean, and I didn't look. I knew that we were we were cool. I knew that all that stuff was was water under the bridge. And we moved on and we ended up reconnecting, you know, in the early 2000s. I went back and played for Lou and we sure. had some really good years in Seattle. And he's my favorite to this day. And he was a big reason that I went back there. Um, but but it's it's cool that you, that one conversation and it kind of changes history. Maybe not 
history for everybody, but obviously the Washington, the, the Washington well, Redskins changes, at that time our, and, and Joe know, Theismann. It changes our personal history. I mean, yeah. who knows? I mean, who knows if I would have been traded? I mean, I spent I was one. I'm one of the rare guys. Uh, when you look around the league, how many guys get to spend their entire career in one franchise? I mean, you know, you you look at Green Bay. Well, you don't know what Brett. Uh, you don't know what uh, Aaron's going to do. But you know, basically, you know, Green Bay. Brett Brett came from Atlanta to go to Green Bay. Uh, Danny Marino kept his down there. John Elway in Denver. There aren't a lot of guys that that had that were fortunate enough to be able to play through some difficult times. I, I think it was a it was a different time in sports then too, Brett. Because you know, you if you struggled. They didn't automatically want to get rid of you. I mean, they made changes, but not wholesale changes like we see today. Um, if, if you struggle today, you have you're on a very short lease. I mean, the and the economics almost make teams keep guys. You're making so much money, nobody can afford you, um, and so you wind up buying yourself two, maybe three years, and then if you can't play, then you're out the door. Now I always think of, I always think of Jim Plunkett. You know, uh, Jim Jim won the Heisman Trophy the same year I came out of college. He also, you know, beat me in a Super Bowl eighteen when he was an Oakland Raider. But he started in New England. Then I played against him when he was in San Francisco, and he found a home in Oakland. Uh, and so, it, it's just interesting how when you look at different individuals in sport, the road that they've traveled, and I think both of us will agree that the road that we traveled, I think made us better people, made us better competitors, uh, and gave us a real perspective of the games that we love. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company. 